Welcome back to Imago Gay. Today, I'm tackling a controversial question. However, it's not so much an answer that we're going to arrive at, but a journey we're going to go on. I recently gave this presentation at the Kinship Camp Meeting, and it all started when I googled a single question, as I often do, was Ellen White LGBTQ? Now, for those of you listening who are not familiar with Adventist history, I apologize. Today's episode is a little bit niche. EGW stands for Ellen G. White, who was a historical figure in the founding of the Adventist Church. So I'm not unaware of how negatively and even unfavorably just asking this question might be received. But I really believe it's important to ask questions, even the questions you think you shouldn't ask. For those who might be wary that I'm even asking this question, let me assure you, the results are inconclusive. Culture and language and expressions of self-identity have drastically changed since the 1840s. So we have to do a bit of time traveling and understand what 19th century same-gendered relationships even look like. And while I can make no hard claims, I do investigate a series of private letters that do reveal a not-so-public truth. So if you're interested in going on a journey, buckle up, because it's a wild ride. Thank you so much for that introduction. I am so happy to be here with you all today. I wish I was there in person, but time and season did not allow this year, but maybe next year. And thank you for everyone who is joining online. So I'm in the Boston area now doing Imago Gay podcast after I, I disclosed my sexual orientation, losing my job. I've told the story over the last year, so I don't want to get too much into that today in fear of being redundant. But I do want to talk about origins today. I'm hoping to leave a little time at the end after we're done if you guys have any questions. And again, thank you so much for having me today. So today we're talking about origins because I think for me, I think origins has been an essential question of my life, right? A part of my origin story is that my mother is Afro-Panamanian and my father is white. I have a history with both the immigrant story and the military story of my father. My mom has since passed and I know a lot of you sitting in the audience know the pain of losing a parent or a grandparent. Uh, these people who hold like the stories of our history. And when we lose them, it feels like we lose a part of who we are, right? And when those chapters close, it's hard not to reflect on their lives, especially parents or grandparents. And we think, you know, how much of myself is similar to them? How much am I different? How much am I repeating the stories of my past? How do I change these stories in my own life? And I think as spiritual people, as you all are sitting here today, that we are wired, and maybe even more so than the average person, to find meaning and purpose and to make sense of our stories. So to frame or, or you know, have a reference for our talk today, I want to discuss Adventist and queer origins. So not everyone sitting here might be Adventist, and that's okay, but I'm wanting to look at some of our church history origins because I think, you know, when my mom passed, I found a journal of hers, and it told me a lot about what her life was like and the things that she was going through and 
and the things that she was thinking about in the weeks and days before she passed. And I think her last diary entry was a prayer. And I have kept that prayer in remembrance many times and wonder if this will be my last prayer too, right? So when we think about these letters that we're going to be going into, we'll go into some letters from history. You know, as much as feelings can be fleeting and sometimes we write in our journal and we're angry about a specific circumstance, it doesn't make them less true, right? Just because they pass and we might find a different way to look at that story. It doesn't mean that those feelings weren't real or that the circumstances we were experiencing were very real. So we're going to be looking at a couple of diary entries of both Adventist and not Adventist people, and we're going to see some of their inner workings, some same-sex attractions possibly, or at minimum, how different relational structures of their day were simply not working. So I don't know if you all are prayer people or meditation people, but I'm going to take just a small moment before I get in to just have a little prayer. All right. So unfortunately, I am like an over-preparer type of person, and (laughs) I have like so many slides. I'm going to try and get through this uh, relatively quickly, and if there are any questions, we can get to it at the end. So this is called Surpassing the Love of Men, and I based it off a book by Lillian Fatterman where she looks at kind of uh, Western female love in the 18th and 19th century. And it's basically taking from the text of, you know, David and Jonathan, right, where that Jonathan's love was, was surpassing the love of women. And so for me specifically, looking at female same-gender love is not something that I had a whole lot of history in, so it's been a really fun discovery seeing how that fits in with my religious history. I became uh, interested in this question about what same gender female attraction of the 18th and 19th century look like after I Googled one question, and please do not laugh. Was Ellen White a, quote, lesbian? It's a question I've had often. And was she bi, was she pan, or was she queer, right? And just because you are in a marriage and you are straight presenting I'm sure as all of us here can raise our hands and know, like, that doesn't always (laughs) mean that you are actually uh, heterosexual. So I began having this question about, okay, well, what did feminine affairs look like in the 19th century? What was the culture of that time? The language, was that language available? And how can we go comparing, you know, two worlds that are centuries apart? So Did Ellen White experience same gender attraction? We're going to get into some tea, but the short answer is we don't know, right? How a person identifies in the 1800s versus 2022 is based on an evolution of language and culture. And so even the words that we have of gay, trans, bi, queer, lesbian, these are all words that have recently come into development and they were just not available 200 years ago. So even that ability to self-identify may not have been there. But there are some things that we can know, and I'm not going to be completely speculative because as we all know, you know, you can't speculate about what someone's sexuality was, but I think it's interesting to know that the lines weren't as straight as maybe we all present. And for me, this is important because it means that the path that we're all on isn't so divergent from the past. There are some minimum knowledge requirements we can get at without being too excessive, right? So in some of the letters, we'll discover that 
heterosexual marriage as constructed in the 1800s, which still have some remnants today, things that I would call patriarchy and things that, you know, are oppressive to non-hetero people, like that it wasn't an institution under which even Ellen White thrived. Uh, In some of her letters, she called it something that crippled her emotionally and mentally, uh, one that she felt thoroughly disgusted with the state of things, to which she said, a great share of my life's usefulness has been lost. So there was a lot of inequality she experienced, some prejudicial views that her husband held against her that made her feel very isolated and alone. We know that in some of her letters, she's like, if I could stay permanently separated, um, I would. But there is a person that she claims to feel is part of herself as I can make no one other. And this person was a woman. Whether this was a period of time Obviously, we all change. Obviously, we all have moments in our lives that are different and are evolving and are changing. So this is not to surmise the entirety of this person based on this single event. But this is interesting to look at this event in this person's life. Like I said, to find ourselves in the origin and in the history, even within our church history. So one of the greatest intimacies she shared with, was with someone that she called her helper, Someone that she had a dream, literally, we're going to get into the letter, where God gave her a dream saying, he has made your hearts one. You should be as one heart and one soul. God has bound you together. Let no influence divide you. This sounds like marriage language. Very interesting. All right. So these letters uh, are Dear Lucinda letters. So there are four letters describing uh, the things that we just kind of went over. Now, why is this important? I think Adventist history often paints heterosexual love as this Rockwell painting of happiness and harmony, and that the founder of this church, EGW, was, you know, very adamant about this institution. And I don't think that's true. In fact, there is a period of her life where the greatest intimacy she experienced was fulfilled in companionship to another woman. And just to be clear, I think, I hope you all are enjoying these pictures too. I've been, I've been enjoying these like renditions of same gender love in the 1800s, early 1900s. So why is this important? I think it's important because, you know, scrutinizing these letters is not to show that there has been hypocrisy in this marriage or that these people were bad people. I think Many of us have been through divorces, including myself, and we know that relationships are messy, and we know that everything's not picture perfect. So it's not to make anybody a bad person, but I think it's to show, one, her very real humanity that I think is often lost in a church that over-theologizes or like erases the parts that are real in order to make a theological point, right? And that her experience as a woman under the patriarchy was very much like the experience of any other woman. Her calling, her office, her her gifts didn't help her rise above that station. And that heterosexual and the marital structure, many of the remnants we are carrying over today, created an impressive environment for many people, including her. All right. A helpmate. I love this term because um, we often associate it to marriage, right? In the garden, Adam was given a helpmate. And 
do we ever question whether there are same gender helpmates? And in this particular instant, I found that God did give a helpmate that was the same gender to another person. Again, just the quotes that I found so powerful, and we'll get into that. This is just my summary. So whether or not these sentiments that we're about to explore are evidence of same-sex attraction or would be classified as a lesbian relationship in 2022, it's really hard to say, right? Even this idea of sexual equality for women specifically, I think has been a fairly new construct. There's even a a documentary on Netflix called Pleasure. (laughs) Check it out. It's interesting. But this idea that women are entitled to equal pleasure and equal happiness in marriage, very new constructs, very post-sexual revolution, not present in the 1800s. So a lot of what we'll see is that some of these sentiments in letters that we'll scrutinize from the 1800s of other women didn't always have a genital component Right, uh, these women weren't necessarily being fulfilled sexually, even though they had these romantic attractions. But because, for a myriad of reasons, that they just didn't act out in that particular way. So, again, marriage and Adventism has you know fundamental belief number whatever says you know marriage was divinely established in Eden and affirmed by Jesus to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman in a loving companionship. And this is particularly interesting, given in light of Roe v. Wade, giving uh, in light of the fact that in the fall, uh, the Supreme Court will also be looking at Oberfell versus Hodges, I think, case, looking at same-sex marriage in the Supreme Court, and is it going to remain federally protected? And my question in this is like, well, has God ever ordained same-gender unions, unions that in every way mirror that of a marital union? And I think for me, the answer is yes, right? We even see some of these things biblically, right? We have Ruth and Naomi, David and Jonathan, Ruth saying, you know, wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. Like these are covenants of union that could have been platonic. They could have had a platonic partnership, could have been something more. We don't know, right? David and Jonathan has a a long list of sentiments after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as he loved himself, right? There's other statements about them becoming one soul and one heart. Like, these are very unified, same-gendered unions. Now, this is what's so interesting because even though we don't have, we don't have evidence of consummation. And also it's hard to track throughout history, same gender relationships for the fact that they don't leave any illegitimate children, right? You know, hetero affairs might leave a child behind, but same gender relationships don't. And so it's hard to always track, but just because even if there was an absence of genital contact, doesn't mean that these relationships didn't have sexual undertones or contain some type of same gendered attraction. And that's where we get into romantic friendships. There are all these famous memes online about, oh, they were such great roommates, right? I just watched this documentary and I can't remember the name of it, but it was these two older women well into their 80s who are just now coming out to their family that they're actually lesbian, but they've been together since like the 1950s, right? They've been together forever, 
and their family all these years had just thought they were friends, right? And I think it's very relatable (laughs) how when people don't feel safe, you know, you often go under the guise of what would be socially acceptable, like friendship. Again, reasons for why these women may have often had like non-sexual nature of female relationships might have been their own like internalized beliefs, right? That women were just not sexual creatures, they were more romantic creatures, or even an internalized homophobia, right? That they didn't want to admit to themselves that they were having these same gendered attractions. Um, So a lot of the same reasons that we won't even admit it to ourselves today. Again, that brings us back to the question, was Ellen White bi, pan, queer? Did she experience same gender attraction? So let's get into it. I think to answer this question, we're going to have to explore three questions. One, how did she feel inside of her marriage? What did female same gender relationships look like in the 19th century? And can we find any evidence of same sex romance in her writings? Ooh. (laughs) All right. So how'd she feel inside of her marriage? We're going to get into some letters. I might skip just for the sake of time, but I wanted to include these because it's important for you to see them with your own eyes. All right. This is in like May of, sorry, 1876. Dear Lucinda, we received your letter last evening Should I come east? James' happiness might suddenly change to complaining and fretting. I'm thoroughly disgusted with the state of things and do not mean to place myself where there is the least liability of its occurring. The more I think of the matter, the more settled I am and determined I am unless God gives me light to remain where I am. Satan has hindered me for long years from doing my writing, and now I must not be drawn off. I can but dread the liability of James' changeable moods. His strong feelings, his censures, his viewing me in the light that he does, and has felt very free to tell me his ideas of me being led by a wrong spirit, my restricting his liberty, etc. All this is not easy to jump over and place myself voluntarily in a position where he will stand in my way and I in his. No, Lucinda, no camp meeting shall I attend this season. God in his providence has given us each our work, and we will do it separately, independently. He is happy. I am happy. But that happiness might all be changed if we meet. I fear. Your judgment I prize. But I must be left free to do my work. I cannot endure the thought of marring the work and cause of God by such depression as I have experienced, all unnecessarily. A great share of my life's usefulness has been lost. If James had made retraction, it would be different. He seems to want to dictate to me as though I was a child. Tells me not to go here. I must come east for fear of Sister Willis's influence or fearing that I should go to Petaluma, etc. I hope God has not left me to receive my duty through my husband. My nerves are getting calm. My sleep is sweet. My health is good. I hope I have not written anything wrong, but these are just my feelings. And no one knows but you. Another letter, a few days later. 
She's like, hey, I wish you write some news right often. I've decided to remain here <laughs> and not attend any of the camp meetings. My husband is now happy, blessed news. If he will only remain happy, I would be willing to ever remain from him. If my presence is detrimental to his happiness, God forbid I should be connected with him. I will do my work as God leads me. May he do his work as God leads him, and we will not get in each other's way. I do not think my husband really desires my society. He has such views of me, which he freely has expressed from time to time, that I do not feel happy in his society, and I never can until he views matters entirely differently. He charges a good share of his unhappiness upon me when he has made it himself by his own lack of self-control. These things exist, and I cannot be in harmony with him till he views things differently. He said too much for me to feel freedom with him in prayer or to unite with him in labor. Therefore, as time passes and he removes nothing out of my way, my duty is plain, never to place myself where he will be tempted to act out his feelings and talk them out as he has done. I cannot and will not be crippled as I have been. Last letter. <laughs> Dear Lucinda, a letter I received from my husband last night shows me that he is prepared to dictate to me and take positions more trying than ever before. I think he would be satisfied if he had the entire control of me, soul and body, but this he cannot have. I sometimes think he's not really a sane man, but I don't know. May God teach and lead and guide his last letter has fully decided me to remain the side of the mountains. He has in his letters, I hope that when my husband left, he did not take God with him and leave us to walk by the light of our own eyes and the wisdom of our own hearts. In his last letter, he repeats that he does not want me to make any reference to what he writes. Till you see things differently. And be assured of this, that none of these things sink me down a hair. I shall have no more controversies with my dear wife. She may call it a mouse or a bat and have her own way. If she doesn't like my position in reference to Edson or other matters, will she please keep her opinion to herself and let me enjoy mine? I shall use the good old head God gave me until he reveals that I'm wrong. Your head won't fit on my shoulders. Keep it where it belongs, and I will try to honor God in using my own. I shall be glad to hear from you, but don't waste your precious time and strength lecturing me on matters of mere opinions. There is considerable more of the same. Now, Lucinda, my course is clear. I shall not cross the plains this summer. Now, I get it, right? We all have controversies with our significant others. We have fights. We have disagreements. We have ways that we feel sometimes disrespected or opinions are not appreciated. I think that that's all comes with marital life, right? But some of the things that I saw in this letter, you know, well, here, in this, in this particular part, at some point she feels regret that she even wrote this letter. And she says, burn all of my letters that will relate no more matters that, to perplex, that perplex me to you. You know, the sin bearer is my refuge. He has invited me to come to him and rest when weary and heavy laden. Um, I will not be guilty of uttering a word again, whatever the circumstances may be. And she put upon herself this silence, right? That the, the idea of counseling, <laughs> the idea of going to therapy was not around in her days. And I don't think that she necessarily chose the correct course of just 
enduring in silence until she could endure no more. And I think by the time she wrote to Lucinda, I think she had just been fever great that she felt alone and isolated and wanting to remain separated. And she talks about her being depressed very often, uh, of feeling crippled in her work, of, of losing a great deal of her life to the inner workings of her marriage in a way that she's been silent about. For a very long time. And she talks about him acting out and speaking out his feelings and dictating to her in a way that I don't really know if she felt an equal in that partnership. I know that she didn't find it beneficial. And I'm sure there were seasons where things weren't as bad, but I don't want to disregard how she was feeling in this moment as a part of our actual history, as a part of the inner workings of the marital life, right? Because I think it shows things to be a lot more complex than we've often painted those pictures. And within that complexity, she found comfort in somebody who was not really her husband. So what do we know? What do we know, right? Not taking things farther than they need to be. Also, just a caveat, this was the time after James had a stroke. So I think what we're learning through science today is like after someone has significant brain injury, it can change your personality. In fact, I think I was watching the documentary where they were talking about the majority of people who are in prison for murder or violent acts actually had some type of head trauma in the past. And that head trauma actually, it, it messes with the frontal cortex, that part of your ability to make judgment. And so is it possible that he's, James suffered some brain damage during his stroke and it changed his personality to be a lot more begrudging and, and unfavorable? Absolutely. We just, we just don't know, right? So what do we know is that this institution, this kind of hierarchy um, was not really working for her. <laughs> Something that she said crippled her emotionally, thoroughly disgusted, a great share of her life's usefulness has been lost. Again, just the quotes of, I dread the liability of Jane's changeable moods, his strong feelings, his censures, his viewing me in the light he does, and his freedom that he told her, you know, that she might have been suffering under some verbal abuse, whether that was uh, injury-related um, or not, right? I cannot endure such a, a depression as I have experienced all unnecessarily. Some of us have been there. So in the absence of a happy marriage, or the absence of a happy marriage does not prove sexual orientation, right? Doesn't prove same gendered attraction or identity. So let's move on to question two. Kind of setting up even just some interesting history of our origins as LGBTQ people. What was the nature of female same-sex relationships of the 19th century? I love this picture. So female same-sex relationships of the 19th century. So one of these things I thought was interesting, you had Boston marriages. It was a term to describe two women who lived separate from men, enjoying the pursuit of their own careers, right? Some of these marriages might have involved a very real romantic component. Others were platonic life partners, but all of which they were seeking, you know, to be free from societal expectations of their gender, right? To be a mother, to not have access to education and career opportunities that their male counterparts had experienced. The Ladies of Langlin in 1819, very fun story. Elinette Charlotte Butler and Sarah Ponsonby, they left the county of Kilkenny together in April of 1776. And rather than be forced into unwanted marriages, they united together. The families tried to break them up, but they ended up living together some 60 odd years. And that's pretty cool. 
Emily Dickinson and Sue Gilbert. So Emily Dickinson, a fairly well-known writer of the 1800s. And out of all of her poems and even several love affairs that she had with men, one of her most passionate poems and letters of affection were written to a Sue Gilbert, who, after Sue actually married her brother, she had a mental breakdown. She says, To own a Susan of my own is of itself a bliss. Whatever realm I forfeit, Lord, continue me in this. Come with me this morning to the church within our hearts, where the bells are always ringing, and the preacher, whose name is Love, shall intercede for us. Very romantic. A letter she wrote to Susie. Susie, will you indeed come home next Saturday and be my own again and kiss me as you used to? I hope for you so much and feel so eager for you that I cannot wait feel that now I must have you, that the expectation once more to see your face again makes me feel hot and feverish, and my heart beats so fast. I go to sleep at night, and the first thing I know, I'm sitting there wide awake and clasping my hands tightly and thinking of the next Saturday. Why, Susie? It seems to me as if my absent lover was coming home so soon, and my heart must be busy making ready for him. And she ends it with him, And actually, Emily in her poems would often change pronouns to fulfill the need for like the male-female traditional couplet in romantic poetry. This is what she says of herself, amputate my freckled bosom, make me bearded like a man. So we see maybe experience a little bit of gender dysphoria or wishing to be beyond the impossibility of what it seemed because of her sex to not have Susie. Do I repine? Is it, is it all murmuring? Or am I sad and lone and cannot help it? Sometimes when I do feel so, I think it may be wrong and that God will punish me by taking you away. For he's very kind to let me write to you and to give me your sweet letters. But my heart wants more. So in these letters, we see that she wants more than just this friendship and that she's wrestling with questions about God and punishment and what is allowable and the limitations of her society, wishing to be a man so that she could be with the woman that she loves, all of these constrictions and not exactly knowing how to break free. Lillian Fatterman, some of you know of this author, she wrote the Emily Dickinson's Letters to Sue Gilbert and Surpassing the Love of Men, and it explores the nature of lesbian relationships in the 1800s. And she writes this saying, these romantic friendships were love relationships in every sense, except perhaps the genital, since women in centuries other than our own often internalize the view of females as having little sexual passion. Thus they might kiss, fondle each other, sleep together, utter expressions of overwhelming love and promises of eternal faithfulness, and yet see their passion as nothing more than effusions of the spirit. If they were sexually aroused, bearing no burden of visible proof as men do, they might deny it even to themselves, if they wished. And a point that I found very interesting between trans men versus lesbians of this time, she uses the term transvestite just to signify we don't know exactly the internal gender identity of what these women were experiencing, but we know that they they dressed as men. So in this, talks about that it was women who tried to pass as men often 
felt more danger within their society because they were kind of assuming upon the prerogative of a man. And I'll actually read this second paragraph. Why was a woman's choice such a weighty factor? An obvious answer was that if a woman dressed like a man, it was assumed that she behaved as a man sexually. If she dressed in clothes suitable to her sex, it might be assumed that she was not sexually aggressive. So two unaggressive females together would do nothing to violate men's presumptive property rights to women's bodies. But I found the answer to be more complex. There were in several eras and places many instances of women who were known to engage in lesbian sex, and they did so with impunity. As long as they appeared feminine, their behavior would be viewed as an activity in which women indulged in while men were away or unavailable. But if one or both of the pair demanded masculine privileges, the illusion of lesbianism as fall de mieux behavior was destroyed. At the base, it was not the sexual aspect of lesbianism as much as the attempt, the attempted usurpation of male prerogative by women who behave like men that many societies appeared to find most disturbing. So it wasn't exactly, you know, some men even preferred the fact that their wives had women lovers because it meant that they weren't going to be cuckolded and they're not going to pass on their property to another man's child. Uh, A wife can't get pregnant by another woman. So it didn't infringe upon male property rights. But trans men often faced burning, hanging, tons of stories in this book of kind of the history of trans men and what an unfavorable world it was. So I think this is all very interesting as we move on, because I know we are pressed for time. Is there evidence of female same-sex romance in EGW writings? And I can't say exactly that there are, but I think this is just interesting, right? She wrote her husband this letter, and she talks about how, since she left, I sleep alone. I can have a better opportunity for reflection and prayer. I prize my being all to myself unless graced with your presence. I want to share my bed with only you. Lucinda is an exception. She seems to be part of myself, as I can make no one other. Another letter dated on a different date. We cannot feel at home without you, Lucinda. You are linked to our souls as part and parcel of us. We have held most earnest seasons of prayer on your behalf. I felt so anxious about you that I could not sleep. We love you and we appreciate you as no others but your own people can. My precious Lucinda, you are dearer to me than any earthly sister I have living. May the blessing of God and his peace abide upon you is my most earnest prayer. Another letter. I wish I could see you, Lucinda. It always does me so much good to see you and talk with you. You take so sensible a view of matters all around. How I have missed you on this journey. Not but that I have friends, but you are nearest and dearest next to my own family, and I feel no difference than that you belong to me, and my blood flowed in your veins. Yes, this is Ellen White. Here's the manuscript, page 33. Um, And this is what I found so interesting. Last night, I had a dream. This is all her writing. That made quite an impression on my mind. I thought that the young man who has often appeared to me and instructed me came in the room where I was and inquired, who is helping you in your work? I said, no one. Said he, the Lord gave you one to be with you and help you and gave her wisdom and tact to be your helper. Why was she separated from you? 
I tried to think about it and answered, it was thought best for her to connect with the office upon the Pacific coast. Said he, God fitted her to be your helper. He has made your hearts one. In her is the help you want. She will not be sustained in the work in which she is now engaged, for it is not the work God has given her to do. God raised her up for you. She should have been with you. Her interest and yours are one. Draw her to you again. The Lord will impress her heart. You should be as one heart and one soul. God has bound you together. Let no influence divide you. So in some ways, you see the language of marriage present. The Lord gave you. God fitted her to be your helper. He has made your hearts one. You should be as one heart and one soul. God has bound you together. Let no influence divide you. Seems kind of like marital covenants in some ways. So what does this all mean? As we kind of conclude, maybe it means nothing, right? I don't know. But I do know that how the presentation historically that Adventism has of, of marriage and hetero marriages and the male being the head of the home as the ideal picture of how God wants the people in his church to be, it's just not true, right? The structure was unbearable for many women, including Ellen White. And I think because of this inequality, even like E.G. White's closest affections during this period of her life uh, were for a woman, you know, and that we learned that same-gender attraction in the 1800s was not always generally consummated, but that does not rule out romance. The person who she dreamed that God had bound her together with, that he had made her hearts one with, you should be as one heart and one soul at no influence divide, was a woman. Very interesting. Lastly, you know, kind of circling back, it is unknowable to know whether E.G. White would be classified as a lesbian, bi, or pan in 2022. Only she could disclose her orientation and attractions, but she didn't have access to the language or the culture that would help her identify the feelings that she was feeling at this time. So minimum knowledge, this is all we can conclude. This is my last slide. Same-gendered relationships between women have historically been a place where women are valued. They are seen, that they are looked upon as competent people, and that they felt, and I think patriarchy affects both men and women, right? That men are viewed through the lens of patriarchy, and women are viewed through the lens of patriarchy. And it just, so I think we've all suffered to some degree in that structure. Marriage, as the church defines it today, is not a union that E.G. White advocated for, right? It's not functionally uh, sustainable. It is unsustainable. Inequality in any form is unsustainable. God has ordained them gendered unions, right? In this instance, there is a union here that no person should divide that it belongs to people of the same sex. Emotional intimacy can only exist with an equal. And laws like the overturn of Roe v. Wade, I think, if I actually cared about heterosexual intimacy, <laughs> I would say that Roe v. Wade is actually counterproductive to that type of relationship if you want to just appeal to that clientele, right? Same-sex attractions exist within our religious heritage, and they might be a little more difficult to find and navigate simply because they don't leave a lot of trace, but we're not so different than the people who came before us. And also... As an Adventist, E.G. White never said anything negative about same-gendered love. There is not a single statement you can find ever, 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 ever in her writings about that being wrong or something that God is against. So, tells you something, I guess. 
For those of you listening, I'm your host, Kendra R. Snow, and our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. The answer to the question, was EGW LGBTQ, is we don't know. So much has evolved in terms of language and culture that comparing the world we live in today to the world available to women nearly 200 years ago, it's not a one-to-one ratio relationship. There are things we can conclude at minimum. At maximum, we can dream of a better world, strive for a more equitable version of marriage, and embrace all of the very human sides of ourselves. Thank you all for listening this week. Imago Gay is a podcast where we explore queer questions and a colorful God. If you have any questions that you'd like for me to answer on air, please feel free to write me at Kendra Arsenal with an X on Instagram or Facebook. And if you are enjoying the content, please be sure to rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. You can follow our sponsors for today, Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International, and be sure to sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly and sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.